Amen. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, praise team. I'd like to invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word with me to John chapter 14. We'll get the lights on so you can see here in just a moment. And while we're doing that, if you have children ages 3 to 6-ish who have registered uh, for our children's worship, we would invite you to uh, make your way towards Miss Amy over there by the door. We love having our children in, in our service. We do not mind wiggles and giggles and whatever, whatever, whatever fun kid stuff rhymes with iggle. We're glad you're here, but we also, uh, if you would like to have your kids hear something that is uh, age appropriate for them, we'd love for them to, to be a part of that. John chapter 14. It's God's kindness that we're able to gather here this morning to hear God's word, to continue our examination of John chapter 14. As you know, uh, many churches are unable to gather for a variety of reasons right now, and so we are thankful uh, to, to do so. And we'll, we're simply going to take the next paragraph as we've been working our way through the gospel of John. And with God's help, we will come to understand what this text means and how it applies to our lives. Of course, we are parachuting back into the middle of a conversation that's taking place in chapter 14. One where Jesus is trying to prepare his disciples for his departure. He's getting ready to leave, and he's trying to get his disciples ready. And it seems to me that the big idea that Jesus wants his people, his disciples to understand is that, yes, he's getting ready to leave them because he has important work to do. But Jesus loves his disciples, and even though he has to leave, that doesn't mean he doesn't love them. He's providing for them. In fact, Jesus, it is because Jesus loves them that he must go to the cross to prepare a way, to prepare a place for them with the Father. And so even though his disciples won't be able to see him, Jesus will continue to pour out his love for them into their hearts. In fact, this is why he sends his spirit to continually pour out the love of God into their hearts. So would you read with me, starting in verse 25, John 14. These things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I'm going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I've told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Will you pray with me this morning? Oh, Father, we thank you for the blessing of your word. I thank you that you've gathered us here today 
to hear it proclaimed. And so we pray that, Holy Spirit, make it clear to us. We welcome you here. We submit to you and ask that you would open our hearts to believe your word, receive your word, enjoy your word, and apply your word to our lives. Give us supernatural resources to do this, we pray. Amen. Now, there are many glorious truths that we could explore and spend quite a bit of time with in these verses. But I'd like to offer what I think is the main distilled idea from this passage. It would be something like this, that even though Jesus has left, he has sent his spirit to continue his ministry. And that is the ultimate source of peace for the Christian. Even though Jesus has left, he has sent his spirit to continue his ministry, and that gives us peace. As we've said, Jesus is getting ready to leave. The cross is looming large at this point in John. Jesus is going to go to the cross where he will die. And yes, he will rise again and in some sense be restored to his disciples, but then he'll leave again. And for those who love him, his disciples, his followers, that will be scary. But we need to see this morning that Jesus is not abandoning them, and he has not abandoned us. But he is left to provide. Jesus is going to send his spirit, and his spirit means peace. It's a terrible thing to be separated from someone you love. In fact, it might be the greatest suffering that a human can experience. Just think of the trauma and the suffering of death. Death means separation. It's physical separation. And that's what makes death so terrible, is that it strips loved ones away from us. And it's traumatic when someone that we love leaves. We understand this. Just this past week, I was getting ready to leave in the morning as I do most days, to take my daughters to work. And I, uh, I take my daughters to school and then I go to work. I've tried to get them to go to work, but they're not ready. They'll do a great job when that time comes. But I, you know, I, was, I was loaded up, I was ready to go. I had my lunchbox, my work bag, and the kids were, were walking out the door. And my son Roman, who's three, and who's in here this morning, he said, Daddy, will you play cards with me? I mean, I'm walking out the door. School's starting in like 15 minutes. I'm like, no, my son. I'm, I'm sorry. Daddy would love to play cards with you, but I, you know, I, can't, I can't play cards right now. And, man, you should see the look on his face. He might do it for us this morning. But, oh, he will. He sticks that lip out. He puts that head down, and your heart just breaks, right? I could see the disappointment in my son's eyes because his dad, who he loves, is, is leaving. And it can feel like... I'm abandoning him. We know that's not the case. See, Roman is learning that though I am leaving, I'm leaving in part to provide for him. In fact, I'm, I'm not abandoning. I'm leaving because I love him. But he's learning that. He just feels left. I think that may be how the disciples were feeling. They, Jesus is getting ready to leave, and he's telling them this, and they're very troubled by this. Verse one of chapter 14 tells us this. They were troubled. That's the emotional climate in this text. And then John uh, tells us that Thomas asked Jesus in verse 5, Lord, we, we don't know where you're going. 
how can we know the way? And so in verse 25, we're seeing that Jesus is ministering to them. He's preparing them. He's getting them ready for the time when he is not physically with them. And that brings us to our first point this morning, which is that the Holy Spirit continues the ministry of Jesus. The Holy Spirit continues the ministry of Jesus. We see this in verses 25 and 26. But the question is how? How exactly does this happen and what does it mean? Well, we saw last week, Pastor Mark showed us how Jesus promised to send the Spirit whom he calls the Helper, the Paraclete, the the Counselor, the Advocate, the one who helps us, who has our best interests at heart and is ready to help. Friends, do you find yourself here this morning and in need of some sort of spiritual help? Oh man, I do. Well, the good news for you, my friends, is that Jesus has made provision to help you. He himself, his spirit, is here, able to help us. You'll see that in verse 26, that the Spirit was sent by the Father and in the name of Christ. I take that to mean that the Spirit was sent on a special mission. He was an emissary. He, he came as an agent to continue a special work, the work of Christ. That's why Jesus says, we're sending him in my name. Now for us 21st century followers of Christ, a man whom we have heard of, whom we have not seen. We've heard glorious things about his teaching, about his miracles. We've heard that he died on the cross and that he rose from the dead, that he ascended into heaven. He can make little girls walk. He can make the blind to see. He can make lepers well. And we've never seen him. Have you seen him? I haven't seen him. And yet I've built my life around him and his teaching. Seems really important to us that we would know how Jesus' ministry continues to us who cannot see him. Well, this is important for us because the Spirit is how we have access to this ministry. The Spirit is how we enjoy the comfort of Jesus. I have three sisters, and my sisters have always joked with my dad since they were little about their hug tanks. Right? They, they would say that their hug tanks are getting low. And that, of course, makes my father's eyes brighten because that means that he has an excuse to hug on his, you know, his adult daughters. And so you know, they hug. And, of course, the hug tank never gets full. It's only depleted. Right? So you have to always be hugging. Now, I'm not much of a public hugger, but one of the hardest things about COVID-19 is that everybody's hug tank is low. Have y'all seen Nate Fowler walking around? He's just this nervous ball of energy that he doesn't know what to do with all this, right? Like everybody's hug tank is low. We have a sign basically on the door that says you're not allowed to hug, right? Hard times. But have there ever been times in your life, maybe a time as you're reading the stories of the Gospels and how Jesus, when Jesus was there, everything was okay. When Jesus was there and people were sick, they weren't sick anymore. When people died and Jesus was there, they came to life. If only Jesus was here. Have you had those moments? Those moments of darkness, of grief, of illness? I've often thought as I visit people in the hospital, I'm like, it's just me. Sorry. Wish I could have brought Jesus with me. 
needed a hug. Wish the Lord was beside you. In your weakness and your sufferings, have there not been times that you wish the Lord was beside you? I mean, Jesus is that one man, that true friend who really understands you. You don't have to explain what you're thinking, what you're feeling. He just knows you and he loves you. Don't you wish he could just be with you? Well, that's the role of the Spirit. He is the comforter. He continues the ministry of Jesus' presence. He is sent in the name of Christ with that very purpose, to help and to comfort you. One of the ways he does this is through the ministry of the Word. You'll notice here in verse 26 that one of the jobs of the Spirit is to teach all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now, this is an important text which establishes many important doctrines about the Holy Scriptures. But for now, we can highlight the fact that this establishes that the Spirit's work is the ministry of the Word. Now, think about the ministry of Jesus. Yes, the ministry of Jesus had miracles. He turned water to wine. He cast out demons. He fed the 5,000, the 3,000. He did all these incredible things. Miracles, and yes, that was part of his ministry. But think about the other part of his ministry. It was a teaching ministry. It was giving words, sharing words. That was so much of the way that Jesus gave life and comfort was through his words. Well, the Spirit continues the ministry, the teaching ministry of Jesus. He did this. in part, by inspiring the New Testament. This verse is important because it shows us how the Spirit miraculously worked in the lives of the disciples and the apostles to help them recall what Jesus said. That's why we have the book of John and the rest of the New Testament. In other words, through the Spirit, we have the Bible. God has given us His Word. And the Spirit is also tasked with helping us with helping illuminate the Bible. My daughter Karis is a reader, and we occasionally will catch her trying to read in the dark. Now, we've found better solutions, but I remember a time where I went into her room, the lights were off, it was dark outside, and she was like reading by the starlight, coming through the crack in the curtain, like squinting, just like, she needed illumination. You ever felt like that reading the Bible? Like, I, I mean, I see the words, but I don't understand the words, and I need them to feed my heart. Well, the Spirit illuminates them for us. He gives them life and breath in our hearts. The Spirit does that. So practically speaking, if we go back to the hug tank, we could say that one of the primary ways that God loves us is through His Word. Through His words. We understand this relationally, right? That's why you buy a $7 Hallmark card. Have you seen those things? They cost $7. Okay, let's set that aside. But we use words to, to love people. And that's one of the primary ways that God loves us. So if you feel like that you need a hug from the Lord, if you feel lonely, misunderstood, afraid, anxious, discouraged, depressed, abandoned, mad, read his word. He loves you. 
and he loves you through his words. Let your heart be hugged by the Lord. But Jesus has another important lesson for his disciples, and that is that the Spirit means peace. The presence of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, results in peace. After promising the gift of the Holy Spirit, Jesus shows what that fruit is, right? Have you ever connected the fruit of the Spirit means results of the presence of the Spirit, right? One of the fruits of the Spirit we know is love, joy, peace. Well, that's what's happening here. He's saying that peace follows the presence of the Spirit. Look at verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Now, remember, the disciples were troubled. And so here we see the response of our Lord. Just as Jesus moved to meet the physical needs of those around him when he saw them, just as Jesus moved into the lives of the lame and the sick and the dead and the hungry, we see Jesus also move to meet spiritual, emotional needs. Isn't that comforting? It's not merely the blind or the lame that he's concerned with. It's not just the hungry that he's worried about. Jesus is concerned for the anxious. Jesus is concerned for the sad, the grieving, the nervous, the depressed. He'll enter into your situation. That's what Jesus can do. Sight for the blind, peace for the anxious. What an encouraging word. We learn a few things about this peace that Jesus is speaking of. On the one hand, we notice that Jesus calls it his peace. It's his. He possesses it, and it's what he is giving. The very same peace that Jesus enjoys That is the peace that he is giving. It's the same substance. It's the good stuff, right? And Jesus goes on to make a distinction between his brand of peace and the world's brand. Jesus has the name brand peace. The world has the off-brand peace. I'm talking like, if you had the off-brand that's decent and then you've had the off-brand that's terrible, well, the world's brand of peace is the off-off-brand of peace. Jesus is cl- he's pointing to it. He's pointing, he's making some distinctions here. He says, it's not as the world gives do I give you. It's his peace. Friends, I think this comparison is worthy of careful attention that goes beyond the 30 minutes we have together. It, it, it encourages us to ask, well, what in the world is this peace that Jesus is talking about? And what's the peace the world has? And which one am I falling in? Which one am I enjoying or pursuing? And how is the peace that Jesus has superior to the peace that the world gives? Well, in the Bible, the concept of peace can be quite broad and far-reaching. On the one hand, it can refer to harmony between nations, right? Like the lack of war, the lack of conflict. On the other hand, it could refer to a sense of prosperity or tranquility in a society. And I think that's probably the main idea that was involved in this conversation here that Jesus had in mind, he's probably contrasting the peace that he's offering to the social, cultural prosperity that Rome was enjoying. Remember, perhaps you remember from school, you learned about the Pax Romana, right? The peace of Rome, the peace that Rome established through incredible advances in technology and government and law and economics and maybe healthcare. I don't all all, the, all these ways that people were enjoying prosperity in a way that was mostly unprecedented and lasted for a long time. 
And even the disciples who are Jews were enjoying some of this peace. And here Jesus is saying, the peace of Rome, is that's not the kind of peace I'm giving you. These outer pieces. There's probably also an inner peace that's in play here. Right? The, an inner man component where peace refers to an emotional, healthy life. The, the state of your inner man. You probably know really well right now how your inner man is doing. So the question is, which of these was Jesus giving? Which kind of peace? Well, I think the answer is probably D, all of the above, right? The Bible describes, I mean, all, from the very beginning, the Bible is describing the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of Jesus, the messianic kingdom as being a kingdom of peace. I mean, the gospel itself is the good news of peace. Jesus himself is the agent of peace. When the apostles are sharing the gospel, there in Acts chapter 10, they call the gospel the good news of peace through Jesus Christ. Peace is one of the dominant themes throughout the Bible. It is the only way that a human can have lasting peace is seen through peace with God. And there's a peace with man and a peace with self. This, this all-expansive peace comes through the person of Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace. The Bible teaches that the kingdom that Jesus came to establish and that he is establishing will bring peace to every dimension of our lives. Just think about that. Can you imagine a day where every dimension of your life will be marked by peace and prosperity and tranquility and relational harmony? between God, between you and the law, between man, that day is coming. And so that's why when Jesus came, he was primarily concerned with how you and I, how mankind can have peace with God. Jesus said that he is the way, the way to the Father, the way to peace with the Father. It is only through a relationship with Jesus Christ that you and I, who are sinners, can enter into the presence of a holy God who is full of wrath towards sin. The only way we can have peace with God is with Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul describes the gospel in Ephesians chapter 2 with this kind of language saying that Jesus, he himself is our peace. He is it. And he has made us one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility that stood between us. Jesus is our peace with God. Be more on that in a moment. But I would argue, as the, well, the Bible teaches that the gospel of peace is also the only way you can have relationships that don't blow up every four days. The gospel of peace is the only way that we can have relational peace. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that those of us who have been reconciled to God are now given the task of reconciliation. We are professional reconcilers. That is, if we know what it is like to be forgiven by God, we should go out and forgive others and tell of that forgiveness. That is, if I understand that no one in the world has ever sinned against me as much as I've sinned against God, and if God has forgiven me, then can I not turn around and forgive others? And will I not want to talk about it? It's the gospel of reconciliation. Friends, the only solution to your marriage conflicts, to your in-law conflicts, to our COVID conflicts, to our racial 
conflicts. It's the gospel of peace. Jesus explicitly says that his peace is different than the brand the world offers. The world cannot accomplish it, and it cannot deliver on it. His peace is not like the world's peace. Now, I think that in this text, Jesus probably, I think he's directly pointing to the Pax Romana, this, the, the political, the, the, the circumstances of their life, the political, social peace that they enjoyed, and he was pointing to it and saying, my peace is different. My peace is different from the Roman peace, your political peace. My peace is different. It's better. It's deeper. It's more ultimate. It's more lasting. And it's true. You may have noticed that we're in the middle of a presidential election. I get texts on my phone. Whoever does that. Mm, okay. Um, but, I mean, but think about what's happening during the during a presidential election. Both parties are offering to us their version, their promises of the Pax Romana, the Pax Americana, right? That's what they're selling. That's what, that's what they're trying to use to buy our votes. They're promising a version of worldly peace. They're selling their version of it, right? Their vision of a better life, more prosperity, more freedom, more, social, more justice, uh, more economic uh, enjoyment, right? These sorts of things. And the, this election, I think, is a really good backdrop for us to recognize and to remember that Jesus came to secure not that kind of peace, but ultimate peace. He is the ticket. He is offering a different kind of peace than what our politicians are offering. And it is so much better. He is the ticket. And he has a different agenda for his people and a different agenda for our lives because Christ knows what we need to be reminded of. Yes, one day his kingdom, we will enjoy peace in a, in a far-reaching way that solves all of these problems that we're facing and talking about in the election. But that's not what Jesus is doing now. He's more concerned with making you like him. And so our circumstances are still going to be hard. We need to remember, friends, that the biggest and most important problems that we face are not political, but spiritual. And Jesus has provided a solution to these spiritual problems. And so he invites us to be comforted, to have peace, not because our circumstances are good, not because your guy's going to be in the office in November, December, January, whenever we figure this thing out. Right? Not, not, not because the circumstances are good or that there is a Pax Romana around us, but because he has given lasting peace. Friends, I plead with you, don't let your inner peace depend on the Pax Americana. Don't let your inner peace depend on what our society can give. They cannot deliver. Which means that no matter what happens in November, we do not need to despair, nor do we need to rejoice, because it's not ultimate. No matter what circumstance, no matter which candidate, no party, no candidate, no circumstance can secure our joy, and no party circumstance can ruin our joy if we're in Christ. Friends, I'm deeply concerned that the world looks on to American evangelism, uh, evangelicalism, and they see that we're more interested in the Pax Americana than we are in this peace that Jesus comes to bring. And they're not interested in our guy. 
supposedly. They're not interested in that, and so they're not interested in Christianity. Friends, which do you love more? Where is your hope? Is it in the person of Jesus Christ or elsewhere? Let us look away from cable news long enough to see that no matter how much chaos there is in the world, Jesus has left us with his peace. And he's building a kingdom of peace. So don't freak out, panic, or be afraid. Let your heart be easy for all is well. I've heard it said that the story has been told of a contest that was established between artists. And artists were asked to to use paint to portray a scene of peace. And so artists painted a variety of scenes. Some painted sunsets, some painted uh, tranquil mountain lakes or rivers or you know, whatever, whatever's peaceful. But the artist that won had a different kind of painting. In the winning painting, you see a bird that is sitting in a nest, and the bird in the nest is on a branch And the branch is at the edge of a thunderous waterfall reaching out over the falls. That's the scene of peace. True peace does not require life to be easy. There can be chaos all around. But rather it means that our hearts are secure because we know that we dwell in safety. God's spirit is with us. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Let's not be a people who are troubled. Strangely, Jesus turns from these words of comfort to a mild rebuke. In verse 28, speaking of his departure, he says, If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I'm going to the Father, and the Father is greater than I. Now, this must have stung the disciples, because the implication is, you don't love me, or you didn't love me, because you're not rejoicing. Right? Do you see that? Now, what does that mean? And and what do we make of this phrase, the Father is greater than Jesus? Well, I think what Jesus is saying is not that he's comparing his essence as the Son to the essence of the Father. In other words, he's not saying that the Father is more God than Jesus is. Jesus claimed explicitly to be God, to be one with God, and to be equal with the Father. Instead, I think Jesus is saying that the Father was enjoying a greater manifestation of glory in heaven. In that way, he's greater. The Father is surrounded by angels who are delighting in his glory, and Jesus is veiled in a human body that's getting ready to be stripped naked and hung on a cross and murdered by men. Jesus is humbled in his flesh while God the Father is exalted in heaven in a different way. But the time is soon coming for Christ to be glorified again. And so Jesus' rebuke was that they didn't understand this, And they weren't excited about him getting the glory that he deserved. Friends, this teaches us that those of us who love Christ, we're going to love his glory. We're going to be excited about it. That's why we are okay singing three weeks in a row, that we want all the nations to praise him. Not only do we need to learn the song, but we need that to get deep in our hearts because we do not care enough about other people. Have you noticed that we're often more willing to offend people about our politics than we are about the gospel of Jesus Christ? We need to be more excited about the glory of Christ than our own glory. That's what the kingdom of God is doing in our hearts. Because we love him, we want him to receive all glory and honor and praise imaginable. I think in this passage, the main way we do that, what's most in view is obedience. Jesus glorified the Father, 
by obeying him. And we should do the same. When we live lives of obedience, our lives are pointing that we serve someone greater than and other than ourselves. Friends, if you're a Christian, one day you will be in heaven and it will thrill your heart to see Christ exalted above everything. You'll be happy to see him above you. And you'll be happy to see other people delighting in him alongside you. This passage concludes with something of an ominous note. Verse 30 says, Jesus is saying, I'll no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has no claim on me. When Jesus speaks of the ruler of the world, he's speaking of Satan. And when he speaks of his coming, he's speaking of Satan's entering into Judas for their diabolical plot to betray Jesus and crucify him. But these words carry with them hope, don't they? Hope that should encourage us and I think just reinforce our peace. Yes, we realize that there is a, that Satan is the ruler of this world. But the prince of darkness, Grim, we don't tremble because of him. Because he has no claim on Christ. These words carry great hope for us. You see, unlike us, Satan has no claim or power over Jesus. Did you see that? Jesus says, he has no claim on me. The Bible teaches that those who sin are slaves to sin. Romans 6 says that Satan, that, that there's a claim that sin has on our lives, that we are slaves, and it will lead to death. But Jesus never sinned, did he? He always obeyed the Father. And so in verse 31, when Jesus says that he always obeys, he always obeys the Father, we know that Jesus will obey even to the point of death. And so even though Satan and Judas will betray Jesus, and Jesus will be crucified, even there on the cross, Satan has no claim on Jesus. So in verse 31, Jesus says, rise, let us go from here. That should fill us with hope. Because Jesus is rising to make his way to Calvary. He rose up to go to the cross where he would die a death to sin so that you and I could be set free. So that you and I could be set free from sin and enjoy peace with God through Jesus Christ. This is why Paul basically rants through the book of Romans that it makes no sense for Christians to submit their bodies against us to be slaves of sin because we've been set free from sin by Jesus Christ. Friends, this is our source of peace. Because Satan has no claim on Jesus, and Jesus has broken Satan's claim on us. That is the good news of, of the gospel, and that is the peace that comes from the kingdom of God. I hope that you know this. And if you do, I'm pleading with you to hear that no matter what sort of chaos you face in your life, Hear the words of Jesus Christ. Let not your hearts be troubled. And don't be afraid. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the words of Christ. We thank you that you have preserved these for us in your word and ask that now you would impart them to our hearts in a way that actually makes a difference in our lives. Do not let us be like the fool who looks in the mirror and then forgets what he looks like. Let us hear your word and walk away and do what it says. Fill our hearts with peace, we pray. In your name, amen.